All right, so as many of you know, whenever I get the privilege of coming up here and doing this, uh, I always like to mix in history and what the Bible teaches us, and because I, I, I don't believe it's, we have a church life and a home life. It's all just life, yeah. right? And they, they're really just one thing. Um, so that leads me to today's topic, which will talk about separation of church and state. And the reason I bring this up is it's probably one of the most misunderstood things out there. I mean, it's, it's all over the map, right? It's the people one way or the other. And what got me thinking about this was, re, re, remember last fall when Franklin Graham was doing that 50-state bus tour, the decision of uh, 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 America, and going to all the state capitals, and, and basically it was a simple theme, right? He said, pray, vote, engage, right? So the simple theme was seek the Lord, seek the Lord's guidance, vote from your heart and your morals, and live your faith. So it was a simple message, not telling people how to vote, who to vote for, was very much just telling people stop and don't get caught up in all the hysteria. So I wanted to go and there's a group from my church going and, and um, as usual, my schedule's too full and, and I've got this meeting, but I know I can get there after the meeting, so maybe I can catch up with everybody. So as fate would have it, the meeting goes extra long and all this. And so by the time I get there, it's already pretty well along and going. So it's down in the lower level of the state house, the bottom lawn where the front steps are and all that. So I'm driving down the hill and I'm thinking about parking and whatnot and I come around the corner and there's all these protesters and they got signs, they're holding up signs, separation of church and state, keep God out of government, protect the first uh, 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 amendment and, and they're holding their signs and now all I can think about is these signs, right? And I'm fixated now on the protesters. And I'm saying to myself, these poor people don't even know what they're protesting. They, you know, protect the first, uh, you know, the, the, the Bill of Rights. Well, do they even know what that says? So maybe today we can learn something about all that and see what it really says and what it really means. And then we'll see what God has to say about it. So what does the Constitution say, right? Well, the Bill of Rights, it's very, it's very basic. It says, Congress shall make no law Rep, uh, respecting an establishment of, re, of re, religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That's it. Doesn't say anything about separation. Doesn't say anything about you can't put a statue here or a crash there. Doesn't say any of that. It just says that Congress will not establish a religion and they won't prohibit people from practicing. That's all it says. It's very straightforward. So where's all this separation come from? Well, it didn't really come from the founders. And I'm gonna walk you through all that, okay? So you've probably heard, right? We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator. That sounds pretty faithful. With certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So there's endless examples of the founders affirming their faith, okay? It doesn't sound like something that they want to separate. There were prayers in Congress. There's a 
copy of a, of a famous painting downstairs in, in the study. Uh, the, the founders all believed that the country was founded on morals and faith. Another quote, our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. That was John Adams. Okay, if you can change the slide. Here we've got Alexander Hamilton says, the attempt by the rulers of a nation to destroy all religious opinion and to pervert a whole people to atheism is an act of moral de depravity. To establish atheism in the ruins of Christianity is to, is to deprive mankind of its best consolations and most animating hopes to make, and make a gloomy desert of the universe. So, that doesn't sound much like they're looking for a separation. Continental Congress, they wrote, whereas true religion and good morals are only solid foundations of public liberty and happiness, it is hereby earnestly recommended to the several states to take the most effectual measures to encourage thereof. It's actually promoting it. And then there's this whole concept of providence, right? Not the capital city, but God's providence, which is really defined as God's sovereign guidance and control, right? God has control. And God governs creation as a loving father, all things are for good, okay? So that's what providence is. Well, everywhere, again, the founders make reference to this. So in the Declaration of, in, of Independence, it says, and for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. In other words, keep this in mind. The Declaration of, of Independence was a death sentence. I mean, these folks stood up and signed this thing, and they pledged their farms, their, their heritage, their lives, their families. I mean, this was treason. You'd be hung, okay, for signing this. So instead of cowering away, the, the signers are, I mean, it's written in there that they are relying on the protection of providence. Okay. George Washington had a deep belief that providence was the guiding hand in all of this. So when Benedict Arnold uh, was captured and found that he, you know, the notes and whatnot, that he was going to basically turn Washington's camp over to the British. Washington wrote, the providential train of circumstances. So he believed God led to this capture. <clears throat> the providential train of circumstances which led to it affords the most convincing proof that the liberties of America are the object of divine pr protection. Though, again, God's hand was on it. God wanted us to win our, our, our liberty. 
when the British were defeated at Yorktown, Washington viewed it as a miracle. He truly believed that it was a miracle that we could beat. Remember, the British were the most powerful army on earth and the most powerful navy on earth. And this group of farmers with muskets are fighting the most powerful army who had defeated armies all over the world. So Washington truly felt this was a miracle. And when Cornwallis surrendered, he actually issued an order to the troops that said, divine service is to be performed tomorrow, meaning that we're going to have a, 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 a prayer meeting, basically. The commander-in-chief earnestly recommends that the troops not on duty should universally attend with seriousness, with seriousness of deportment, which is how you act and your, the, how you be, behave, attend with the seriousness of deportment and gratitude of heart which the recognition of such astonishing intervention of providence has demanded of us. So in other words, the hand of God led us to victory. We need to give thanks. Okay? My point here is this is all built in. I mean, this is the faith of our fathers. So uh, Washington was clearly convinced that God was leading us on this path. So if the framers were so faithful and they wrote in this amendment or this Bill of Rights about separation, or not even separation, but freedom and Congress making no law as far as establishing a church, why did they do that anyway, right? Hamilton thought we didn't even need a Bill of Rights because he felt these truths were self-evident. So we don't need, he argued, we don't even need a Bill of Rights. It's clear, it's crystal clear. And the government will honor the powers granted to it. Now, we find 200 some years later, maybe the government didn't honor all those things. But Hamilton actually believed you didn't even need it. It was going to be automatic. All right? So since, since, in the Bill of Rights, it strictly speaks of freedom. Why did the founders even care about all of that? Why did they have to even mention freedom or establishment? Well, keep in mind, it's the late 1700s, right? So it's not today, it's late 1700s. There were many countries that had a state church, okay? One of them was the Church of England. And the thing that the founders knew was the Church of England had a lot of control. The bishops had a lot of influence. They were part of government. So the Church of England and the, the hierarchy in England were pretty much one and the same. And they saw a lot of bad things happen. Right? People were put to death for heresy, okay? burning at the stake. Um, and they also saw religions running the government. And you get a lot of that in the Middle East, like they would look at Persia and say, okay, the religion is the government. It's the clerics are running the government. So they were very fearful of both, that the, the faithful could try to run the government or the government could try to run the faithful. They were fearful of that. So they wanted freedom, and that's what did get put in. So, that, so that's what's put into the Constitution. So. 
how did we get to a separation? Like, where did all that come from? Right? It came from somewhere. So how did we get there? Well, it came from interpretation. Right? So people said, well, we think the founders did this or that. And the interpretation that unfortunately comes the most is the interpretation of the courts. So the courts got into the First Amendment and said, okay, what happens? And like all things, we get creep, right? It's a slippery slope concept. It starts out a little and then it grows from there. So the first poke at this, believe it was fairly recent, at least in, in history, was in 1947. The Supreme Court heard a case that basically said New Jersey was funding transportation to schools, public and private. And some were parochial schools, and so it got challenged. Somebody stood up and said, oh, this is no good. The, you know, the government's poking its nose into faith. So the court heard this case. So I'll read you a quick blurb on the ruling. But it basically said, the, uh, it was Justice Black who said, the establishment of religion clause of the First Amendment means at least this. Neither a state nor the federal government will set up a church. Neither can pass laws which will aid one religion over the other or prefer one. Neither can force influence a person to remain away from the church against their will or to force them to attend a church if they don't believe in that. No person can be punished or for professing uh, faith. No church attendance or non-attendance, no tax can be uh, placed on, on churches. But the, the tricky part, this is where the, the pinhole comes. It says, neither a state nor the federal government can openly or secretly participate in the affairs of any religious or organization or group or vice versa. And then he quotes Jefferson. And he says, in the words of Jefferson, the clause against establishment of a religion by law was intended to erect a wall of separation between church and state. Well, in this case, the New Jersey law was actually upheld, and the, the court basically said, look, there's no interference here. Uh, the New Jersey law can continue as is. But it opened the door, there's a pinhole there, this wall of separation between church and state. And what did Jefferson really mean about that? So after this, like all things uh, that are hot button, a bunch of things started, you know, other courts started jumping on this reference. So there was a court right afterwards in New Mexico, a state court, there's a lot of debate. There's lots of talk about what does the Constitution call this and what is this wall of separation. Now, Madison, who actually drafted the Bill of Rights, all right, actually believed in a separation but for purity, okay, so that there wouldn't be a, a taint in either direction. So Madison wrote, a perfect separation between ecclesiastical and civil matters Authority of the church, which should come from the church, is decided by the church. 
And that which is decided in civil government is decided by civil persons. So uh, certainly felt that you don't want, again, it was all about purity. Madison also wrote practical distinction between religion and civil government as essential to the purity of both and as guaranteed by the Constitution. So people started jumping on these things. Even though none of it was law, it was all just quotes. So then we get to the slippery slope part. Now prayer in school comes up in a case. So 1962, there was actually a mandatory prayer. Um, and the New York Board of Regents had drafted this prayer and people were saying it and whatnot. Um, and that came up and was ruled unconstitutional, but they cited Justice's black wall of separation quote, okay? So again, the crack getting bigger. And basically the ruling said, it's no part or official business of the government to comp compose uh, official prayers for any group of the American people or to re recite any in a program carried out by the government, meaning the school system. So then there was, again, the crack widens. Then there was a, a teacher who was reciting the Lord's Prayer in school. So that gets attacked one year later. So then that gets struck down. Can't say the Lord's Prayer anymore. Then you might remember this one. In 1985, there was an Alabama law that said that students could observe a moment of silence. Right? So if we can't pray, we can't do any of this in school, maybe it can be a moment of silence. People can do what they want. If they want to say a little prayer, or they, they want to meditate, whatever they want to do. So then the court actually strikes this down as saying it's unconstitutional. It's the promotion of some kind of faith-based something. So again, the crack's really getting wide now. They felt that the that statue advanced uh, the beliefs and pushed them onto people. So Reagan was in, in office at the time. If we can go to the next slide. So Reagan, a great president, right, says, the Constitution was never meant to prevent people from praying. Its declared purpose was to protect their freedom to pray. So again, I go back, if you read the First Amendment, that's exactly what it says, you are free to pray. It doesn't say you can't pray, it says you're free to pray. So maybe the courts are starting to think this a little too far. So then we get into the re re religious displays, right? You know, the, the crash, that's the famous one. Again, you might remember, 1984. At first, the court upheld the display of the crest, saying it was incidental. It didn't really, uh, it wasn't a direct link. It was merely a display. But then, there was another crash that had some wording on it. And the wording on it was glory to God in the highest. Well, now that might be just too much as being incidental. So that crash was stricken, all right, and put down. 
So then you also might remember in 2001, there was a judge that had installed the Ten Commandments in the judicial building. This goes through litigation year after year. If yes, 2003, federal judge removes the, the orders the removal of this monument. Well, the judge actually, Judge Moore, so it is, actually refused to remove it and appeals the case. So he's fighting all this, and the appellate court said, too bad, it needs to be removed. It doesn't apply, you know, it doesn't comply with the separation that's been developed through the courts, not through the Constitution, but through court cases. Justice Moore refuses, again, to remove it, and he's actually removed from office. So the persecution continues, right? That's in 2003, so not all that long ago. So it's right here in the U.S. So we see that this is growing. And so now we say, well, what did Jefferson really mean about this wall of separation that Judge Black thought was a, a brick wall? So Jefferson actually wrote this reference in a letter to Baptist churches. And the letter was for fear that the government was actually imposing the beliefs of the government onto the church. So that separation was to protect the Baptists. But Judge, Judge Black thought differently. So here's the letter. Jefferson writes, Believing with you that religion is a matter that lies solely between man and God, that he, owe, that he owes account to none other for his faith or his worship. And by the way, it remember, 1700, so his, her, the gender doesn't matter. It's, all, it's man as a, as a people. So it says, Believing with you that religion is a matter that lies solely between man and God, that he owes account to none other for his faith or his worship, that the legislative powers of government reach action only, not opinion, and I contemplate with sovereign reverence the act of the whole American people to declare that this legislature should make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation. Now, I, I read this to mean the opposite of what Judge Black read it to mean. I read this to mean government keep your hand out of the faithful. Judge Black seemed to think it means everything is barred. So the founders, as, as we saw, had a lot of faith, believe in providence. They, they backed us up, very frequently attended church, uh, held church in the White House, prayer in Congress. I mean, this is, this is all actual practices, it's not just words, it's things they were actually doing, okay? And if they were so against it, if that was really the intent, wouldn't they have written something different to bar at that time? Why, why do we need the court to try to help us figure out what they meant? So, so then we think, okay, so what is the government anyway? What's the government's purpose? Well, isn't it for social order and to protect people from wrongs? 
So we know that if there's no government, it leads to chaos. Right? If you think there's no laws, you can think of like Afghanistan and all the bad things that go on there because it's lawless. So government does bring a sense of order. It does bring uh, 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 a sequence and helps people to, to be safe and things like that. What does the Bible say? So, if we can click the next slide, it's just some verses here. So, you don't need to turn to this first one, but the Bible seems to also be in favor of a separation. Again, maybe not the Justice Black separation, but maybe more like the Founders. It says, and this is many times you've heard this one before, is Jesus says, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God. In other words, Caesar can keep his nose out of the faithful and the faithful can not be all that concerned about Caesar. Give Caesar his and give God his. Then in Isaiah 9 there's a little more evidence of the separation, right? It says, For, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign in David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time and forever. So, again, God has his own governing laws. God is, is sovereign. doesn't need to be part of the government as, as we have it. But God does support the rule of law, okay? Because, again, the chaos thing. Now, if you want to follow along, in Romans chapter 13, stick here for a little bit. In Romans 13, 3 to 5, it says, Rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but only for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear and one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. Rulers are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. It is necessary to submit to authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but for a matter of conscience. So God is promoting the following of, of rules and law, okay? some semblance of order. But that brings us to the First Timothy point. So Timothy, or it's actually it's Paul writing this, but so Paul in his letter to Timothy says that he understands that rulers are under certain pressure. They're humans. They make mistakes. They have shortcomings. They might let power go to their head. We need to pray for them, all right? Much like Franklin Graham was saying. So Paul here says, I urge then, and this is in Timothy to. Paragraph 1. So 
in 1 Timothy, he says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in godliness and holiness. So again, that's that semblance of order, okay? That's that, the, the peace that comes with all that. Ironically, both those that say to obey the rulers and that says pray for the rulers is all written by Paul. So it's heavy stuff. So you think about it, we're called to respect these government leaders, be subject to the government and obey the rules, okay, so not chaotic. Pray for these leaders that they may have wisdom and guidance, and even pay taxes. That's the next paragraph in, in Romans 13. Pay taxes. I mean, here's God saying, pay the tax you owe. But now we've got a dilemma. So we have all this encouragement and guidance. What happens if the government goes astray? Or the leaders get out of hand? Or do things contrary to God's will? So now we have the paradox. How do we follow that and not disobey God? So maybe that submission to the government isn't an absolute because we're still called to discern right from wrong. And obeying a leader doesn't make that leader right, right does not make the leader just or, or right. It just means that they happen to be in that position. Most important though is to follow God's will. So if, we're, if there is a government mandate or initiative or something that's contrary to God's will, God's will will take precedence. That's not my opinion. In Daniel chapter 6, verse 6, so Daniel 6, 6, we all know the story, right? Daniel and the lions. But a lot of us probably don't know how he got there, what happened. So in Daniel 6, 6, it says, so the administrators and, and set, I'll say it wrong, satraps went as a group to the king and said, may King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, the prefects, the satraps, the advisors, the governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human during the next 30 days, except to the majesty, King Darius, shall be thrown to the lions. So, Daniel says, okay, here, there's a rule here now, there's a law here that I have to pray to King Darius, but I know that's not right. So what did Daniel do? Daniel went to the window and prayed aloud to God, day after day, until the soldiers came and took Daniel to the den of lions, and that's a whole other story, okay? And didn't the wise men disobey Herod when Herod demanded, you know, where is the Savior? Where can I find him? The wise men actually kind of told a fib there. So they disobeyed the command of the ruler, but again, obedient to God outweighs obedience to any worldly leader. 
So when government's unable, unwilling, not capable of using its authority for protection and good, God's mercy will reign. Right? We see it over and over. We see these examples. And think about this. Even when there is persecution and martyrism, don't we look to the martyrs and doesn't that generally revive God's purposes? Don't we get excited and, and motivated to take action? Okay, so even those persecutions lead to good. Okay, God uses that to advance God's will, God's purpose. In Proverbs 19, you don't have to turn just to prove this point. It says, many are the plans in a person's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. Okay, so that's exactly the point. As much as we may think this or that, God's plan always prevails. So here's what's interesting. We even have this diversity of cultures and language and rules. There's all these different languages and different rules, different governments, different beliefs, different everything all over the world. And every attempt to unify any of this stuff has always failed, right? Whether it's the, the Soviet Union that fell apart, the European Union is shaky, the empires that have happened was the Ottoman Empire, the British Empire, any empire has always crumbled. The dynasties of China, it goes on and on and on. Even the Roman Empire, which was not the biggest, but probably the longest, 1,500 years of Roman rule and it crumbles, okay? So is that part of God's plan too? You know, so maybe all this diversity and, and whatnot actually brings more glory to God because it makes us think, right? It's kind of like I always say to people when they live in Florida, I go, it's like summer all the time. There's nothing to get excited about. You know, it's always a nice day. Well, same thing. Maybe this, these things, all this diversity makes us think more, makes us act more, makes us more encouraged. It's all part of God's plan. And we know God's kingdom will endure forever. Right? So in Psalm 145, it says, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures through all generations. So our ultimate purpose is to worship the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And think about this. Even with all the nations and all the attempts to unify, like I said, whether it's United Nations or European Union, Psalm 86 reminds us that all nations you have made will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name. So again, the unification, if you look at Psalm 86, the unification is God's call. It's God to unify. So through all this, we can see the intent of the First Amendment, God's purpose, the reactions that we have as a society, that the world has. It's way more complicated than what maybe we could put down into a simple statement like separation of church and state. There's a lot more going on here than that. So maybe next time somebody demands that, you see a protester, you know, and they demand separation or a court case or somebody riling up, 
be kind, right? Maybe they don't really understand what they're asking for. Okay, so let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your providence and for guiding us and showing us your will and uh, giving us the motivation and the tools and the spirit and, and the ability to take action and, and be your soldiers. We thank you for, even though the things might not always seem so simple and easy to understand, that through your guidance, through your word, we can see more of what you intend and want from us. So we thank you for loving us and for giving us your son Jesus and bringing us closer to you each day. Amen.